Thank you, officer. It's important we look at the facts. Why? Why? Douglas Ross is sounding pretty scared. I believe in independence. And he clapped like a seal. Hello and welcome to another Planet Hollywood. I'm Paul Hutchin, the political editor of The Daily Record. Joining me this week are two esteemed colleagues, John Ferguson, who's the political editor of The Sunday Mail, and Anna Burnside, who's the chief writer of The Daily Record. So we're going to go straight to the very sad news which broke this afternoon about the death of former Labour Chancellor Alistair Darling. Um, I don't think uh, anyone really saw that coming, and it is uh, very sad indeed. Um, Alistair Darling was a a remarkable figure. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that he served uh, in the last Labour government from the first day to the last. So I think he was Chief Secretary to the Treasury um, under Tony Blair, and then in the final days of Gordon Brown's premiership, he was, of course, his Chancellor. So that was quite a record. And then, of course, he led the Better Together campaign during the independence referendum. And I think uh, many folk on the no side would say his role in that was absolutely critical. So, Anna, just starting with you, people, when folk die, people often um, uh, make over-the-top tributes, but there's no doubt about it, Alistair Darling was a Labour giant, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a huge figure, a really, really solid, um, quite old-school um, Labour politician. So I'm very sad about this. Um, I knew him quite well in my um, first proper job in journalism, which was as editor of the Gorgido Rai Gazette in the 1980s. So at that time, um, he was the MP for Edinburgh Central. And these the Gorgido Rai Gazette was a community newspaper it was um, funded partly by Lothian Regional Council, then Labour controlled. And obviously we had a lot to do, you know, it was a community newspaper. We had a lot to do with our councillors and MPs. So I got to, that's how I got to know um, Alistair and I just found him a really solid, decent uh, guy to deal with, generous. Um, I, I a lot of respect for him as a politician. I met him again. I remember bumping into him again years later. Um, just walking through Edinburgh, um, and I, I <laughs> and, you know, I was by this time, you know, working in another paper slightly uh, higher up, but I hadn't, you know, reached the reached the extent of you know being in government, which he had. So we'd been a bit of a divergence in our careers, and I was like, oh hi, you know, how are you going? How are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just off to visit some schools. And he 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 just said, oh yeah, well, you know, you 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 get really stuck in an office being a politician and and whenever I can, I like to just go out and like, you know, meet people and kind of see what's happening. And I have to say, I was just very impressed by that. And, um, you know, I think it's a model that other politicians would do well to follow. I think that's a very apt uh, anecdote, Anna, because he, he was a councillor in Edinburgh. That's correct, yeah. part of his career. You know, quite a left-wing councillor. And then he was elected Westminster, I think, in 87 and so held all those roles in, in government at different levels and then chaired better together. He, he was a public servant to his fingertips, wasn't he? He absolutely was. And he was just generous. He had a, a generosity um, with his time. 
you know, I remember going to parties at the, um, he was married to Maggie Vaughan, a journalist at the Glasgow Herald, as it was at the time. And I remember going to parties in their lovely house in Stockbridge and just being slightly slack jawed at like, oh, this is how kind of cool grown ups live. You know, they had private eye cartoons on the wall. And but but it's that generosity that I remember. You know, he didn't have to have a party and invite the editor of the Gorgas or I Gazette. You know, that was above and beyond. Um, and um, I think that that also just speaks very well of him. John, he was Chancellor during one of the most tumultuous periods of, of recent uh, British history. By that, I mean the financial crash, which threatened to, to take down the British economy and pretty much every other economy in the world. How do you think you'll be remembered in, in terms of how he dealt with that crisis? Yeah, I mean, he's it's will remain controversial, won't it, that he was the Chancellor who took the decision to bail out the banks with billions and billions of pounds of um, of taxpayers' money. Um, and, you know, the, so there's differing opinions on whether that was the right thing to do. It certainly does seem that those banks would have collapsed at the time if he hadn't taken that action. But who knows how everything would have played out. But, I mean, I think also you would mention that he played, he, he led the better to together campaign which obviously was also a deeply divisive um period in scottish politics and i guess that what's testament to his character is that you'll not really find anyone who will have a bad word to say about alistair darling despite the fact he was you know had this very controversial job in government and took controversial decisions and also led a very controversial um, political campaign around the the referendum. You're, there's nobody really, I think, that you would find who would who would um, have much much of a bad word to say about about Alistair Darling, despite the fact that he was involved in such controversial things. I think that's testament to his character. He's just clearly a very nice and considerate man who was genuine and um, and genuinely wanted to to make Scotland and Britain a better place. And looking back, John, I mean, you know, 2029 sounds an easy thing, but he was the sort of perfect candidate for the better together rule, wasn't he? You know, he was a Labour figure um, and he was kind of trusted across the political aisle in terms of the, the sort of the, the unionist perspective. You know, he was a, you know, a one-time chancellor. He was noted for his integrity. It, it, it was much better that he led the campaign than, um, say, say, a Conservative from the, the David Cameron government. Yeah, absolutely. It was a sort of, a, I think he pitched it just about right, didn't he? It was a very kind of softly, softly approach that he took, didn't he? You know, think that if you had Gordon Brown's clunking <laughs> fist, that might not have gone, gone down quite so well with the public. Because I think they, they chose Alistair and he was the perfect person for that job because he could just, you know, very nicely explain and... Um, you know, he wasn't he wasn't too confrontational in the way that he went he went about things. I think that was probably about about right. I mean, and don't you think that I was just I was just going to add that I mean that you know his demolition of Alex Salmond over the currency question in that first TV debate I thought was a pivotal moment in the mm. referendum campaign and that that really set the tone and and made that I mean for me the issue that 
that always, always, always had the yes campaign on the back foot. And he had the perfect authority to do that. You know, he, he, yeah, Salmon has, you know, Salmon has a lot of personality and all that things, but Alistair Darling has been chancellor. And that's always going to trump that. And from that point of view, I thought that was really, really well played and that he, he played that perfectly. I think you're right, Anna. That was probably the highlight of his referendum. That oh, that was a, it was a that was his moment, really, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, all, all the expectation was that Salmon was going to win because he was the showman, but uh, it didn't work out that way. And, and Alistair Dalla really did land some blows on the, the currency question, particularly. It's funny because I just uh, I spoke to someone who worked with him during the Better Together campaign about five minutes ago, and he was saying that um, after that debate. I think Alistair Darling went back to Better Together HQ or maybe backstage and uh, all, all his supporters were sort of whooping and cheering and, and he was kind of embarrassed by that. You know, that just wasn't yeah, really that's his, not his style. style. That wasn't really his style, was it? He's not a, like a, you know, you, you know, you know, he's not the kind of politician that you imagine a big foam finger would play any part in his, you know, scenario. Yeah, he, he was quite, not, not staring, but he, he was, you know, he was, an, he was a modest guy. I mean, he was, he was very, he was very clever. I think that's partly what I mean about it being quite old school. You know, he is, I mean, you know, as, as Brown was, you know, he's of that generation, a very different generation, a very unflashy, um, un, unflamboyant, which was why it was so interesting to see him up against um, Salmond and how, how those two, you know, kind of slightly curdling um, personalities um, squared off against each other. I mean, that was just um, a fascinating thing to observe. And I mean, you know, we don't often frame it like this, but, you know, Alistair Darling and the Best Together campaign won. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that has to be, whatever your personal feelings about it, I mean, you know, they won that campaign. And, you know, that that has to be something that's on his record. And I think Alistair was 70 when he died, that's that's still pretty young. Not much um, of an age at all, is it? You know, it's, he's the latest in a long line of Scottish politicians who died too young. You know, Donald Dewar, John Smith, Robin Cook, now now Alistair Darling. Um, I mean, you know, these, these people should have should have lived for a lot longer than they did. Um, but you know, we often look at some of the rotten politicians we've had, but we've said pretty. Excellent ones as well, and you'd have to say that Alistair Darling was among them. Absolutely. Um, just moving on then uh, to the, the Michael Matheson story, John, um, story that never dies. It's like Groundhog Day. Um, I think we said last week, we spoke about how the corporate body in the parliament had launched an investigation into the, the, the data roaming scandal what we had this week was a poll showing that a majority of Scots want Michael Matheson to quit. Um, it's just not going away, is it? We, we, haven't, we haven't had a, a great revelation in this story for quite some time, but it, it's just the story that doesn't die. Yeah, it kind of, it, I think the problem for Michael is that even if you believe his version of events, he, he's still clearly was told a lie when he said to the, when he gave an interview and said that there had been no he wasn't aware of any personal use of his iPad that he's you know his his own statements later seem to completely contradict that and frankly his 
overall explanation isn't particularly plausible. Um, so I think that the longer it rumbles on, the more damage it's doing to the Scottish government in general. And, he, you know, you just feel like if, if Hamza Yusuf had been smart about this, he could have, he should have said to him, you need to resign and possibly he could have come back into the government mm -hmm. and say six months a year. It's, but by allowing him to stay and to just sort of try and brass it out, I just I think it's, it's doing untold damage to everyone involved. That's it, John, because we know from like the Tory government down south that a resignation these days isn't really the end. It's just... <laughs> Sadly staging, not. No, it's like a staging poster. Come back within 18 months. If he'd if he just put his hands up and said, look, um, I messed this up, I'm going, I would imagine he'd be back in Cabinet by the end of this term. Yeah, exactly. Um, he could have been back fairly quickly, but it's just, it's just it kind of feels like he's taking everybody for a fool now, doesn't it? He's, you know, by just belligerently saying, I'm not leaving. Yeah, stop uh, following me. Yeah. Yes. Stop asking me questions. I just think it's spectacular the way that he has misread the room on this because anyone who has teenage children has been in a situation similar to this, probably not 11 grand's worth, but, you know, we have all been there. Our children have all bought something on an online game or some done some daft thing of this nature and landed their parents with some horrendous spill. And had he fessed, I really believe that if he had fessed up to this as, as soon as possible, people would have been sympathetic and he'd have had to pay it off and do whatever. But I think people would have basically been sympathetic to him because we have all been there and we know how horrendous it is. And he has just done the classic thing of making the cover-up worse than the crime, and it's the lying that is really, really unattractive and a bad look. And why... The corporate body are doing this investigation into Michael Matheson. Do you think that uh, a critical finding in this investigation... We need a knockout punch, don't we? I mean, they've made it clear that their strategy is just to hang on and and try and, as John very eloquently said, brass it out and, you know, tell, tell journalists to stop following him. So it needs something else to happen. Something has to move. So, yes, it could be, you know, the corporate body could... Um, deliver the the knockout punch. It's got to be something. Something else has got to happen. Otherwise, I mean, they're they're just they're going for the kind of um, you know general winter um, school of politics, aren't they? They're just saying right, just tough it out, say nothing. It'll soon be the holidays. You know, it'll go away. Everyone will kind of forget about it. Something else will happen. You know, um, circumstances will help us out here. So it needs to have something. Something needs to move. What's your kind prediction, of feels like John? In the past, you it out? I can't hear. I in the past, the knockout blow would have already come, wouldn't it? You, would think so. you know, Henry McLeish and Wendy Alexander well, and exactly. all of these figures in the past re resigned for an awful lot less. Masses less. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about it, isn't it? It shows how our political culture has changed and whether that's like the whole Johnson. Farago, but you know, just generally, what people are prepared to accept has just the goalposts and that have just moved into the far mm. horizon, haven't they? And what we now consider unacceptable or acceptable behaviour has completely changed. Yeah, I blame Trump for that. It's like the Trumpification of politics. Yeah, yeah very Trumpy. 
you know, you'd think just out of sense of shame that he would quit, but it seems to have spread all over the world that, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And it makes Thomas Yusuf look very, very weak. It really mm. does. It makes him look like a bit of an idiot um, standing standing by this. I mean, you know, middle middle performing minister. I don't think anyone could look at the NHS and say the, the guy was playing a blinder, really could be. Um, so standing by this middle performing minister who who's just making him look bad on a daily basis. Um, the third story we're going to look at, a completely different issue, is uh, abortion clinic buffer zones. Now, there is a proposal by the Green MSP Gillian Mackay um, to, to create buffer zones, which is a response to anti-abortion protesters outside clinics. And it would mean that they would not be able to uh, harass women uh, within a, a, a sort of certain... Uh, I think it's maybe 200 metres from an abortion clinic. I think that's correct. Yes, yes. So th this is going through Holyrood just now, and it's raised questions about how do you define harassment, what would be uh, included in the buffer zone. And uh, the former SNP finance secretary, Kate Forbes, gave an interview uh, to uh, a Christian media outlet at the weekend in which she said that she didn't think that silent prayer outside abortion clinics should be within the, the ambit of the legislation. I'll just quote what she said. She said, I think there are some really important points here. Firstly, I do not think that you can ban prayer. So I think that silent prayer is essential and that is an important freedom to uphold. Now, and I think that you wrote about this in your column. Oh, yes. What is... What's your response to Kate Forbes's defence of silent prayer? Well, I, frankly, I think it's a piece of nonsense because it, it's very disingenuous because, yes, people are welcome to pray silently anywhere they like, for instance, in their home or in church or wherever they happen to be. What they do not need to do is go and very ostentatiously do it with banners outside a healthcare facility where women are going for a termination of a pregnancy. There's no need for that. The own, that's, the, the, you know, they can pray anywhere they like. The only reason that they are choosing to pray in that particular spot with that particular banner is to harass and intimidate women who are accessing healthcare. And I think we have to be very, very clear about that. Abortion is healthcare. Um, it's one of the World Health Organization's um, designated pieces of essential health care that should be available to everybody and you should be able to access health care without having a religious zealot um, praying or in some cases actually reciting bible verses to you when you are quite possibly in a very vulnerable and um, difficult situation you know the if you look at the reasons that women uh, would be terminating a pregnancy you know they range from contraception failure to being in a having been raped having been in a victim of incest having had um having a really serious medical condition that the pregnancy um might be making worse possibly having taken drugs for a serious medical condition before you knew you were pregnant there's a whole gamut of ghastly scenarios where you may then um, be in a situation of having to terminate a pregnancy and which is a, a 
very difficult and horrible thing for anyone to have to do and what you do not need is um, anyone silently praying, you know, while you're um, going to the appointment. So I really think it's very invidious and it's kind of just, it's just using prayer. It, it's using prayer as a kind of cloak to hide this nasty um, campaigning behind, I think. Anna, the thing that strikes me about it is that if, there are 10 people outside an abortion clinic silently praying. You have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of that? And well, like, clearly, the purpose of it is to make these yeah, women feel bad, to yeah, make them they, feel shame or embarrassment or possibly, I mean, to, you know, I would imagine they would say that they would like um, to be changing their minds about accessing healthcare. Well, you know, you don't, you don't silently pray outside uh, a clinic to, to, um, try and get people to change their mind about having their appendix removed or their knee replaced or whatever other, you know, their teeth cleaned, whatever other medical procedure they might be going to do. You know, obviously abortion is such an emotive issue um, that people do behave in that way. And, you know, we have people like Kate Forbes saying it's a legitimate way to behave, um, which is why I think the, the buffer zone legislation is unfortunately needed. And, uh, you know, it's to Gillian Mackay's credit that she's um, that she's got this bill to the stage it's at, you know, and it's at the consultation stage at the moment. And um, hopefully she can get it over the line. John, Kate Forbes clearly has her supporters in the SNP. I mean, I think she won 48% of the vote in the leadership battle against Hamza Youssef. But... Do you believe, like I do, that her views on things like equal marriage, which she said that she would have voted against had she been an MSP at the time, um, her anti-abortion stance, her scepticism of parts of the, the buffer zone plan, is this still her Achilles heel? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's, I thought it was an extraordinary thing for her to have said that, you know, that this silent prayer thing is just clearly like Anna's just explained this is about intimidation and shaming women when they're in a you know a very vulnerable position and I don't, it just seems crazy that you wouldn't want to that you would you would essentially be condoning that kind of behavior um and I think what it shows is that Kate Forbes has these very strong religious beliefs that is People think, well, surely she's going to be able to put those to one side if she was to potentially become the first minister one day. But I think you, you seem to see time and time again that probably that wouldn't happen and that these are really are a, a, a strong, a huge part of who she is as a person and that she, it, it's just, it's not something that she can kind of leave at the door when she goes to work. So it's, I, I think it, it, it just shows that these kind of issues are going to come up time and time again. Um, if, if she decides to to challenge for the leadership of the SNP at some point. Yeah, let's imagine there's a spring general election and an SNP have a terrible election. You know, they lose a couple of dozen seats, there's huge pressure on Hamza. Um, and Kate does decide to, to stand against Hamza Yusuf. Anna, do you think she would stand a chance? Well, she has she has got a a very clear um, you know faction of support who don't seem to mind 
her socially conservative views. But I, I do think it would be unpalatable to a lot of people in the party. Obviously, it would spell the end of the Green Coalition. I mean, that, again, to her support base is a plus point. Um, so I think it's probably a deal breaker, but I think it, if there was such an election again, I think it would be quite unpleasant and possibly divisive and um, even counterproductive. I'm surprised that she's not trying to reassure people. If she's still got leadership ambitions, that she's not trying to reassure people more on things like equal marriage and abortion. Um, but she does seem to be doubling down and, and uh, expressing yeah. her dissatisfaction with elements of what's being proposed. In While not ruling out standing again. So, yes, I mean, clearly that's that seems to be her strategy. She, she's very... She, she sees no reason why she shouldn't you know, be absolutely clear about about what she stands for. So, I mean, in some ways you have to say, well, fine, you're being very clear about it. And I suppose, you know, if if she if she wasn't being clear about it, we would be having the the counter conversation, wouldn't we? Saying, oh yes, but you know, she, the way she's um, approached it, she's not leaving any room for oh yes, but is she? She's making it absolutely clear where mm. she stands. So I suppose in some ways, well, that is helpful. That is helpful because if these are deal-breaking issues, then we're absolutely clear that, that you know, that for you that deal is broken. I think, I think um, that they want, you do have a little bit of sympathy for them from, for, from the point of view that it's, it's the one, I don't think anyone will ever interview Kate Forbes without asking her a question around abortion or same-sex marriage or something like that. You know, I've not, nobody's asked her about creationism yet, but I'm sure at and some point someone yeah. will, you know, that, that she, as much as she, I don't, I don't think she particularly wants to answer questions about these things, but she's always going to be asked them and it Absolutely. does appear that she's not going to compromise on what she believes. Um, and it's, 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 it's in a way, it's a it's a shame because they're, they're, she's clearly a very competent politician who would have a lot to to offer. And I, I was suggested to me that if Hamza was clever, what he would do is sack Matheson and um, give Kate Forbes or certainly offer Kate Forbes the job as health secretary. It would be a way of neutralising that threat from her as well. I as mean, I think I think it was a mistake for him not to offer person. And I think it was a mistake for him not to offer her a job. I mean, they're not as the Matheson. As the Matheson debacle shows, they're not exactly over endowed with sparkling talent, are they? So I think that you know that that was a huge mistake actually for him. I think not to bring her into the tent. Although I mean, I can see the logic to maybe replacing uh, Matheson with Forbes, but would that not put her in charge um, of the buffer zone legislation, or at least? <laughs> well, possibly, the, yes. Also, <laughs> minister, so that that might be quite a tough one to square off with the Greens, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I think. I mean, I think the reason that he didn't bring her into, that she's not in, in the cabinet is hugely to do with the Greens. I think that those two are, um, to use an unfortunate possibly analogy in this case, I think they are oil and water and, you know, they, they ain't going to mix, are they? Um, very briefly, speaking of oil, uh, First Minister is in Dubai for COP. Uh, John, inevitably, you get a bit of moaning about why is he there? This is a UK government matter, but 
I'm pretty relaxed about it. He's Scotland's first minister. He's representing Scottish interests. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, he's, it's like you, know, you want to criticise his decision to go. You, you know, you talk about the, the amount of carbon that he's going to have burned through travelling over there. Um, and there is also question marks in general over whether the COP conference isn't just one giant greenwashing um, opportunity. The, this year it's been led by um, the, the Sultan al-Jabbar, who is actually the head of the UAE's biggest oil company, the biggest oil company in the world. And there's been stories about how they're doing oil deals behind the scenes at the conference. So there are question marks over the the whole idea of having a COP conference, but I don't suppose Hamza Yusuf's um, uh, presence there is doing any harm. And I think we do know that he, he is a genuine believer in, in, in trying to tackle the climate conflict, the, the, the climate crisis. So I don't think it's a bad thing to, for him to have gone. And uh, John's right, isn't he? It's, it's about what's achieved at COP, what the outcomes are, rather than um, Hamza Yusuf being there or not? Well, I mean, I'm glad you you put this on the list um, for today because actually I'd forgotten he was there and I got a bit of a surprise um, when it was Shona Robinson at First Minister's Questions. I was like, oh, why is she there? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, right, okay. He's away at the, the COP conference. Um, because foreign policy is a, a reserved issue, you know, Scottish First Ministers don't have many opportunities for foreign um, trips, jollies, exposure, however you want to frame it. So I don't think you can really blame him for wanting to take um, this opportunity because it's not, you know, to be on a world stage isn't isn't an opportunity that he gets um, very often. I, I hate my doubts that him being there will make a bit of difference to anything. I mean, obviously um, what matters is them, you know, making some progress um, whether or not Hamza getting his chopping's worth in will will um, further that aim. Mm, not so sure about that. All right, let's wrap it up. Um, good week, bad week. Uh, let's start with you, Anna. Uh, okay, good week. Um, I think Patrick Harvey, uh, the Greens um, energy um, person in the Scottish Government cabinet, has actually had a good week. Um, so it might not initially sound like that. The the plan to phase out gas boilers has been pushed back by three years. But actually, I think this has been well handled. There's, actually, there's been a consultation on this. And it actually sounds as if people have actually listened to, to the consultation, which with many consultations, you don't get the impression that, and that they made a blind bit of difference. This actually does seem to have made a difference. Um, and I think the new scheme, they've recognised that some of the things we're asking for are unrealistic or the timescale was unrealistic. So they've reframed a lot of that. So actually, I think that has been well handled and it's a, an important but quite boring thing that, but that has to be done. And I think actually it's been well handled. So not often you can say that. So I think that's a good week for Patrick Harvey. And let's hope that, you know, we can make some more progress on that. Bad week. Uh, Stephen Flynn, SNP leader in Westminster, in his gilet. Um, th this is such a bad look. I wish men wouldn't. I wish everybody wouldn't wear these things. Um, I would just like to point out that the MP's salary is eighty six point eighty six and a half thousand pounds a year. He works <laughs> in South London. 
he has within walking distance many nice shops where you could wear where you could buy a jumper, a nice merino wool jumper in a neutral colour that would look extremely smart and keep him cosy and uh, he can not wear the gilet or keep it for weekends at home when he's gardening, which is the only time it's excusable to wear one. Ah, it looks like a turtle with that sort of... A terrible look. It's not a good look. Not a good look at all. Um. Steve, if you're listening, you know, we appreciate the call and we go out for the dealer record, but um, uh, ditch the gilet, ditch that jacket, definitely. Um, John, over at you, good week, bad week. So, I've gone for Humza Yusuf as having had a good week. Um, he's there was a STV poll that um showed that or that appeared to show that the, the SMP are actually doing not. Too badly with them um, voters. It showed that the SNP are actually ahead of Labour and I think it was Westminster voting intention. And also really interestingly showed that support for independence at 54%. Um so that's you know, it that does feel like it's a bit against the grain of what of you know, amongst all of these scandals, that support for independence appears to be increasing under his leadership of the, the SNP and Scottish government. Um I think it's been a bad week for Michael Matheson and the only way that he has really of ending this is to just accept that the game's up and um, and resign his his post. Great. Excellent. Well, thanks for that. That uh, that concludes another Planet Hollywood. Um, God knows what we're going to be talking about next week. Who knows, maybe Michael Matheson yet again for the what feels like the sixth week in a row. Um, so thanks to Anna and to John for their expert analysis and commentary, and hope that you tune in next week as well. Bring up to it's important we look at the facts. Why? Why? Douglas Ross is sounding pretty scared. I believe in independence. And he clapped like a seal.